you've obviously got lots of experience from the change in the window nation consent law in Wales and I'd be interested to just get your insights on how this was implemented in Wales and how you basically went about it. So you'll remember back in 2008, the task force recommendations came out from the organ donation task force that was uh, put together by the, uh, the Department of Health at the time to really look at the, the structure and uh, the function of organ donation across the, across the UK. Um, and within those recommendations, one of them was that opt-out should be looked at, but um, it wasn't a priority. Actually, infrastructure across the UK was far more important. And then in 2009, there was a subsequent document that focused particularly on opt-out legislation and the balance of consensus and information that was out there from an international perspective, as well as the appetite within the UK was to not pursue that. However, the health minister in Wales at the time was Edwina Hart, and uh, she didn't necessarily agree with that take. And she wanted to put it to the Welsh public about whether we were going to pursue a deemed consent in Wales. So it was her really that was the main driver. There have been a number of health ministers since who, uh, who oversaw the implementation, but Edwina Hart really put it out for public consultation about whether we should pursue opt-out legislation. And the response rate was really very positive. There was a high response rate, first of all, and secondly, it was extremely positive. So that gave the green light really for the Welsh government to start pursuing that. And obviously bearing in mind that healthcare in Wales is a devolved function, so didn't necessarily need permission to uh, take this on. So following on into 2010, 11, 12, there was lots of background work around what was the way forward, looking at yeah, the public consultation, the professional consultation, looking at bodies, third parties, stakeholder engagement, third sector, so charities as well, um, and really getting a, a feel for what the opinion was in that respect. And it wasn't really until 2011, 2012, that we really started to formulate conversations with the Human Tissue Authority and with NHS Blood and Transplant to really uh, flesh out what a policy and what a, a law would look like at that time. So that was the driver for it. The implementation as we drew, so the law came into effect in 2015, but it was enacted in 2013. So there was a two-year period running up to delivery of the legislation, which really encompassed a two-year program of media campaigns. But we also needed a lot of time to make sure that the digital changes that were required to support the legislation were in place. And primarily what we're talking about there is we had an organ donation register that was opt-in only. And anybody that's worked in the area of digital functions like that, uh, and it's a national database with however many millions, it was like 14 million people on the register at the time. We had to be really careful with that information and data while also transferring it onto an organ donor register that allowed for an opt-out that would also be future-proof for England and Scotland and Northern Ireland and the Channel Isles and things like that. So that was... You know, in a nutshell, from 2009 to 2013, the main function of all of our work at that time. Well, it sounds like a, a huge amount of work. And interesting, the approach is very much to get buy-in from quite a few different areas and sectors, really, it sounds like it. Yeah, and I think that was a lesson learned from Wales that we've brought into the English approach as well. A legislation like this on its own, you know, you change a law, it's very rare that you get a behaviour change strategy to work just through legislation. And there's, there's a few small examples like the seatbelt campaign and the smoking campaigns over the years, like smoking bans even, where legislation has really forced the issue. But if you want a mass behaviour change like opt-out legislation, you need to get buy-in from the public, the people that are going to be implementing it, the charities that represent individuals who are the, you know, the, the less fortunate than others and therefore waiting for transplants and those sorts of things. 
So whether that's in Wales or whether that's in England and Scotland and Northern Ireland will be doing that in due course as well. Uh, the engagement is absolutely central to all of this. So yeah, a lot of time was spent, particularly in Wales, because I think it was the first time going ahead from the UK, the clinical setting needed that additional support around managing expectations and managing potential fears around what the legislation might mean and bring. It's interesting how there was quite a positive response from families and from the community. And the fear has always been that this law would be something that people would be very scared of and very upset about. So pre-legislation change and post-legislation change, the awareness campaign has demonstrated a high awareness across Wales of the law change. And indeed, there has been correlative support of that change as well. So on the whole, yeah, we've never really been met by a great deal of resistance from the general public overall. There will, there will always be pockets of individuals who are perhaps less keen on it. And there'll be a, a whole host of reasons for that. There might have been a bad experience in the past. They might have seen something that they have bought into on the television, all of those sorts of things. But then there's also, you know, those areas that are hard to reach. In Wales, particularly in the valleys uh, north of Cardiff, there are areas there that are kind of digitally disadvantaged, perhaps don't get the opportunities to be aware of public campaigns. So there would be pockets of resistance in those areas as well. On the whole, yeah, the general public very positive about it. How did you choose your campaign strategy and what was it? Okay, so the campaign strategy was very much led by a marketing PR company based in Cardiff. So the Welsh government took on the responsibilities around marketing and they, uh, they commissioned a company called Golly Slater as their marketing consultants. Um, and the campaign was very much centred around kind of the time to talk premise. So, you know, the law is changing in Wales, so it's time to talk to your husband, wife, partner, spouse, loved ones about what it is that you'd want to do. And then as we got closer to the deadline, it's like the time is getting close for you to make a decision. And then after the legislation had been brought into force, the campaign strategy talked about the law has changed. Have you had that conversation? There is still time. A lot of the visuals that came out were of individuals going about their daily lives with a digital clock on their chest, on their heart, on their kidney, on their liver with a countdown clock. And it was signifying how long they had for the rest of their life waiting for a transplant. And then like TV adverts would change to there would be a pause and then the clock would start ticking upwards again and they've got the rest of their lives ahead of them. So that marketing campaign had a budget of £2 million over two years, which when you look at per head of population in Wales is a very good amount. They were able to make that money go a long way in Wales. Interestingly, though, we worked alongside a research group at Bangor University who took on a whole piece of research that lasted for 18 months. So from the day of uh, the legislation change on the 1st of December 2015 for 18 months onwards, there was a set of research in the background looking at the snods attitudes and behaviours towards the donation changes, the consultants and clinical staff, but also the family attitudes. So they were going out to donor families and families who had not consented to donation to get their thoughts and feelings, not just about the experience of being in the hospitals, but things that they remembered from the campaign. And one of the things that really stood out as a strong message was that the campaign wasn't memorable. So that was an interesting piece of feedback because a lot of effort had gone into that and the Welsh government had thought it was a hard hitting piece, but it just hadn't stuck with the general public per se. So credit to the Welsh government from that, they commissioned another set of, a second wave of adverts and marketing materials that were far more hard hitting. They focused specifically on the role of the family because the first part of the campaign had missed that entirely. So a second set of adverts talked specifically around the role of the family. And if you're going to be a donor, you have to tell your loved one, otherwise they may speak for you. And the adverts around that can be seen on YouTube, actually, they're excellent. 
Yeah, I've seen the video. It's um, very hard hitting, actually. It's yeah. almost a little bit scary the way the face changes with um, the different family members that come in. Absolutely. But I think it actually had the desired effect because when you start looking at the awareness trackers afterwards, the awareness of the law change and people being able to say, oh, yeah, I've definitely seen that advert, that stuck with them. So, you know, it got the point across. I guess it's that thing of if you've got an idea or an opinion of how you want something to happen, your worst worry is that someone's going to take that away from you by making that decision for you in a situation where you can't be involved in it. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, an end of life decision around organ donation could be seen by some as similar to what you would put in your will, or if you were planning a funeral, you know, somebody might have time to plan their funeral and have a list of songs and attendees and people they want to speak for them. So would you go against that? You know, if if you were organizing their funeral, and you've got this list of this is what I want as my dying wish, would you go against it because it just didn't suit you? We can draw those parallels, although they're not identical, you can still draw those parallels. And I think that that sometimes sits quite nicely with families. Yeah, I can't imagine my mum choosing my uh, soundtrack for my uh, funeral. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can only imagine. That'd be a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> so it sounds like the second part of the campaign probably had more of the desired effect, do you think? I think there was much greater feedback in the positive sense that that part of the campaign was really working. I mean, again, we have to credit the Welsh government around the fact that they didn't just provide a two-year campaign that stopped on the 1st of December 2015. There was financial support and a kind of a workforce in place after the legislation had gone live to react and respond to feedback as and when it happened. So I think that that was a real positive as well, that we're working from in England to make sure that that continues as well. How did you manage to reach those pockets of the population that are generally quite difficult to reach with sort of marketing campaigns? So you mentioned before the sort of digitally disadvantaged groups. How did you manage to target them? Yeah, so I think there was special interventions that were put in place where in those areas where we know are hard to reach. And it's about understanding how those communities come together to support them. So in some of the valley areas that we know are difficult to reach, they may not be on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or you know, even have a good enough broadband to go searching the web. But they will congregate often in their town halls, social clubs, working men clubs, that sort of stuff. So where we knew that they were difficult and hard to reach groups, we would go to them. Particularly in the initial phase, part of the public consultation, I went around many public gatherings at town halls and showgrounds and all of those sorts of places. And we did the face-to-face stuff. Uh, and they were packed out, actually. The other thing I was just wondering about is how you engaged with the um, critical care community. So within organ donation, you probably do already know this, but it's, it's worth just uh, setting the scene on it. There, are, there is a network of uh, clinical leads for organ donation who NHSBT pay a session a week of their time. So what we did is bring them all together uh, in Wales. That was about 15, 20 people, and we gave them the education package. So the Human Tissue Authority wrote a code of practice, which is kind of like our Bible. It translates the legal speak of the act into digestible, understandable language that allows you to practice within the remit of the law. So they were actually involved in the design and the architecture around that legislation or that code of practice. So in terms of making sure that that code of practice mirrored clinical practice, uh, and it wasn't just this pie in the sky idea that, you know, we should all conform in, in a certain way. It needed to reflect how people were practicing in the clinical areas. So having their involvement to start with, again, always allows people to buy in. 
once they're in there from the start and they're understanding how this law is being developed and the codes of practice are coming together, when you present an education package, it's stuff that they already know. And actually, they've started to build a level of expertise and information that they're willing to share and actually proud to be a part of. So they would then go back to their clinical areas, whether that's in Cardiff or in West Wales or in Bangor or Wrexham. And they would have this slide set, but they would also have this experience of the last couple of years helping the Human Tissue Authority and the Welsh Government build this legislation. And they would be our advocates and representatives in the clinical area and supporting organ donation as they already have done, but supporting the legislation change. And you know, much of their work was around making sure that their colleagues weren't developing a catastrophic thinking around legislation. So when you say the law is changing, often a response to that will be, well, what happens to me if I don't do it? Is there a prison sentence? What are the recriminations that go with that? And it's, it's very much not about that. The legislation change is very much key at the point of delivery to the donor family and it supports the family supporting donation going ahead rather than you know referrals and those sorts of things. But they were key to supporting that part of the legislation change while also emphasizing the importance of all aspects of the process. So whether that's early identification and referral of potential donors, uh, so when they meet those trigger points, making sure that brainstem death tests are happening when they're indicated. And, you know, the early identification and referral allows for snods to be present in the breaking bad news conversations. And again, the law won't do anything if the process doesn't stand up. And so they were kind of advocates for the process as well. You mentioned about the donor family being at the centre of it. I wonder if you can just talk to us a little bit about how you went about thinking about those conversations that we have with donor families and how that might need to have changed. So this is probably one of our biggest learnings in terms of things that we didn't get quite right and how that's changed and developed over time. And it's really got us to thinking about the importance of the language and even individual words. So the training was developed and we understood how the law worked and how deemed consent could be applied. What we didn't really do is enough practice before going into the live environment around what that conversation feels like. So it's a new set of terminology, it's a new language, so to speak. And you're talking about, you know, the law in Wales has changed and deemed consent now applies and your loved one could have their consent deemed, which is for some people quite forward. When you start a conversation about the law, some people would switch off. Some people are a bit political. Some people are a bit rebellious. In general, people don't find the law that interesting and won't be told what they should do. It took us a little while to catch on, if I'm honest. And three or four months after the implementation of the legislation in Wales, our consent rates were dropping. And both Welsh government and senior leaders in NHS blood and transplant were asking us why that was. And uh, it's quite a sobering and vulnerable position to be in when you've got inadequate answers around that. But, you know, as a, as a team, we spent a lot of time coming together then around what is it you're doing? What are you doing? How are you doing it? And actually what we found was that many of our nurses were going into those conversations thinking we must apply the law, we must apply the law, and families were being turned off by that. And actually what we were finding from some of our colleagues is if you don't talk about the law and you talk about the benefits of donation, we have a life-saving opportunity here where you could go on to save three, four, five, six, seven lives and there's a legacy for you and your family and you might well be proud of a decision that you make to support donation. Families were much more attentive to the emotional what's in it for them scenario rather than the laws change and this is what you should do. That was a light bulb moment for us, I've got to say. And once we got under the skin of that, that we were perhaps leading with the law and not with the benefits of donation, we started to see an upturn in our consent rates. 
specialist nurses were feeling much more comfortable in those conversations as well because it wasn't such a clunky, dry topic of conversation. You can really build a rapport around the benefits of donation. But on top of that, we then started to develop a real interest in the importance of language. So the legislation talks about individual citizens of Wales need to make a decision about whether they want to be a donor. But common parlance in organ donation was it's about a wish. So we really got stuck into the detail about should we be using the word wish or should we be using the word decision? And this is where we started to bring in real experts. So we had a professor of linguistics come to speak to us from Cardiff University. And she really helped us scrutinize our own language. And we delved into what's the difference between wish and decision. And you might wish to win the lottery. You might wish to go to Disneyland when you're a child. You might wish to play for your favorite football team or all of those things. And actually, the concept of a wish is a fanciful ideal that you accept may never come true. You know, you blow candles out on your birthday to make a wish that you know is never going to happen. But actually, if you've made a decision, it's a considered opinion. You've thought about it. You've given it some weight. You've given it your time at a moment in your life when you're not in the worst possible situation, i.e. you've not been given the worst news of your life. So we started to change our language from wish to decide, or your loved one has made a choice. And even just simple words like that add strength to the conversation. And we started to develop that a little bit more as well as we've gone along, particularly with people have an opportunity to opt in and opt out on the organ donor register now. And where you present that to a family, we teach and coach now that you should approach that with the family to say that your loved one hasn't opted out of organ donation, because it infers that if they were against organ donation, they would have done something about it. So that is some of the key lessons and learnings that we've taken from that. But on top of that, with the research that we had from Bangor University, the marketing campaign did speak about you either have to opt in or opt out or do nothing. But whatever you decide, organ donation is your choice. Feedback from families in that piece of research demonstrated that doing nothing is not a choice. Inaction isn't an action in itself. So we had to be really careful about the language that we were presenting in those conversations because they did nothing. They decided to be a donor. It doesn't sit well with anybody. I can imagine that. And in some ways, the final decision still lies with the family. It does. So going again, into a conversation saying that this is the decision already made gets yeah, you into so a difficult position, doesn't it, I guess? It does. It does. And, you know, we, we, we've seen this in England. And again, part of the learning and what we're still developing here and that we've taken from the Welsh experience is that, yes, the final decision rests with the family, but they are deciding whether they want to support the consent that's in place. So where deemed consent applies, so they don't fall in the exclusion criteria and they've not made a decision known either on the organ donor register or they've not verbally expressed it to family, deemed consent can apply. And it's up to the family whether they decide to support that deemed consent. So again, the language changes subtly from this is your decision to consent to this is your decision to support the donation going ahead. It's really interesting, actually. The language in communication is so important. And actually, it's one of the things I do with my trainees is I always tell them to try and get into as many family communication sessions as possible just to watch. Um, and just to observe the language that's used and the responses that you get from family. Um, and I sometimes have to stop myself before I go into a meeting and think, how am I going to frame this for the family? And actually, it's very sometimes specific to different families and different groups as well. So you have to adjust that um, accordingly. Yeah. And one of the things that we're doing in England now, which is born out of the learning from Wales, is around debriefing post-approach. 
So an understanding what the circumstances that our specialist nurses find themselves in when talking to families. And it's so motivating and inspiring to listen to those conversations because actually sometimes they're in less than ideal situations. They've had a late referral, they arrive on the unit, they're pushed straight into a conversation with a family and they adapt so quickly. And, you know, there's a whole host of scenarios that we've come across that aren't best practice, but the specialist nurses are so skilled and such great communicators that they're providing a platform and a support system for that family to reach a decision that they're comfortable with, whether that's a yes or a no. But what we'll never let the specialist nurses do or the specialist nurses will never let the family do is take a knee-jerk response. And I think, again, this came out of the work that we did with the linguistics professor, but also the hostage negotiator that we brought in to work with us as well, is that people in crisis live in an irrational state. You know, whether you've just been told that your loved one is dying or whether you're close to jumping off a bridge, you're not thinking in the best possible way. And as communicators and as specialist nurses, they are trained to recognize the state that the family are in and bring them from a hot state to a cold state where they can talk rationally about what their loved one would have wanted and advocating for the lost voice in the room. Because if their loved one would have been there, they would quite happily told us what they would have wanted. So we have to get them to that position where they can think about what their loved one would have said. Yeah, and I guess you don't want the family to regret making a decision at that point later on. That's it. And there are occasions where specialist nurses take some criticism from clinical colleagues, uh, whether that's nursing or medical, about not accepting the first answer. And I think that comes from experience that there is a number of cases where families have said no to donation because it was their knee-jerk response and it wasn't something that they thought was coming to them as a question. And then months later have been in touch and have said that they've regretted their decision. So it's important for us to make sure that we explore that conversation as far as appropriate. And appropriateness is very much dependent on the family that's in front of you. Some families would completely stonewall you and others will be very happy to have a long conversation about what they would have wanted. But you're absolutely right. That's absolutely important because the decision needs to be enduring. I can't believe you went to the extremes of getting a hostage negotiator to uh, to give some input on things. It's incredible. Yeah. One of the best things that we did actually is so eye-opening from a blind spots in communication perspective. We work in a values-based organization and I'm sure many other healthcare services do that. The hostage negotiator talked about, you've got to leave your baggage at the door because this is not about you. So often as specialist nurses, we will walk in and we will make judgments like within two seconds. And that's normal, but you make those judgments, you've already got baggage and you're projecting your values and clinicians are the same. You know, and nurses are the same. It's like, oh, I don't want to approach for donation. It's, it might upset them more. It's like, well, this isn't about you. You're projecting that opinion onto that family. And how much worse can it be? They've just been told that their loved one's dying. So that was one of the most eye-opening experiences I've had with a hostage negotiator. Sounds like some really good tips. Again, I've talked to my trainees about going to review patients on the ward, totally different topic, but, you know, decisions about admissions, critical care, and it's important to leave, as you say, your baggage at the door before you go in. And, and, and look at those situations with very open eyes and from, from a different perspective is really important. Yep. It sounds like it's, uh, it applies to a lot, a lot of situations in healthcare and clinicians can be quite bad at that. I think so. I think it's, it's very hard to remember when we've got all these pressures that go on external to your, you know, the, the function that you're there to perform. And sometimes it's a task and sometimes it's a conversation. But, you know, very simple things like every contact counts and families and patients and staff around you will remember the days when you're having an off day but every single contact makes a difference and you need to be aware of that every time 
It sounds like there's some really vital lessons that you've learned both in terms of communications with family, but also in the campaign and education of people around a change. Was there anything that went particularly well? Well, I think the media campaign did go well. I think when you look at the media campaign as an entity on its own in terms of its reach, in Wales, there was a reach of greater than 80% at its peak, which far outstrips any public campaign that we've seen from Welsh government ever before. And that includes the smoking ban. So to have a public awareness campaign where more than 80% of the population are aware of the change, that's significant. I think our engagement efforts were very important and successful in respect of once the law had come into place, the hard work started with our clinicians to get them trained up and supported. And by and large, they were very, very supportive. Historically in, in Wales, they have been supportive anyway, and specialist nurses have been part of the donation conversation and the Baker and Bad News conversation in the 75 to 80% bracket. But after the law came in, we saw that rise to greater than 90 to 95% the specialist nurse there. Some of that might well be because you want some experts in the room. If family bring up the tell me about the new law conversation, as many were, I think there was a fear of some vulnerability of not having all the answers. So it's about having the right people in the room at the right time which obviously builds into a lot of the work that FICM, ICS, uh, everybody else has done about endorsing best practice guidance and stuff that we see from NICE as well as about having that triumvirate of consultants, specialist nurse and bedside nurse in the room to support the family. So that continued very well as well. I think outside of the clinical area, you know, we had some resistance from some faith groups, particularly the Church of Wales. The Archbishop at the time was vocal in his opposition to the law change. And we had to spend quite a lot of time working with those types of bodies because they had quite a big reach and quite a big influence. And what we didn't want is a certain group just deciding that, okay, en masse, we're going to opt out. So we had to work with those faith groups. Another group that had come forward to talk to us was an LGBT group because there was some resentment around gay men not being able to donate blood or not being able to donate blood within a certain time period. Often the comments were, you know, if the blood's not good enough, then why should we donate organs? And we had to do quite a lot of work with groups like that to support them through the understanding what the law means and how it can make a difference and what that would mean for their group as well. So I think the engagement activities as well were fantastic. And I think just finally would be the digital transformation that we saw during that time. Just changing an ODR, which seems like, you know, just, just switch over. Why not? An enormous piece of work, an enormous piece of work, which is so delicate and multi-platform. Many of our digital platforms rely on that one system. So if the organ donor register goes down, you would see many of our other systems like the transplant waiting list disappear as well. So to have delivered that was an impressive piece of work. There's a lot of lessons to learn there, isn't there? And it sounds like you've had a really positive experience in a, in a lot of ways. The bottom line with all of this is when you go to conferences and, and those sorts of things, the one question everybody wants to know is what difference has it made? have you seen an increase in donor numbers and have you seen an increase in, in consent rates? And we have to pay a lot of credit to people like Mike Stevens, who's a transplant surgeon in Cardiff, who spent a lot of time advising the Welsh government about measuring success and being careful not to put your success on things like transplantation rates, because you might get higher consent rates, but that doesn't always translate into transplants. It's all often about organ viability and utilization and those sorts of things. And the same can be said sometimes with actual donor numbers. You might get consents, but the consents still need to convert into donations. So that took a little bit of time for it to filter through. 
and you know key messages post legislation change that we're able to take into England is be patient because mass behavior change like this doesn't happen overnight and in Wales I think it took us three and a half four years to see a statistically significant increase in consent rate for DVD donation so we managed to reach above 80 percent three and a half years after the implementation so when the law went live in 2015 we were hovering around about 65 donors a year that went up above 85 now so we're starting to see that impact later down the line but Obviously, media interest is in the short term. They know that the law's gone live here. So six months down the line, we should see an impact, right? And that's not how it works. So we have to be very careful with the messaging to not kind of promise the moon on a stick. Mm-hmm.